It's Tuesday, October 12th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Give me more of that fine electronic disco that always gets the juices going in the brain. This is Peter Bergman, host here at Radio Free Oz. My co-host, David Osmond, sitting right across Yo from Yo dudes. Yeah, yo dudes. Oh my golly. Metal language is everywhere. It's so hard to keep up with with metal language. I, 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 I don't do it. I mean, I love it, though, you know. Do you know that for a long time, metal language was generated almost exclusively by surfers? I'm talking about pop metal mm. language. Surfers mm. ruled. Rule. That's all part of it, right? There it is. You know, I hung 10 with the surfers. It was gnarly. You know what I mean? And then came hip-hop, and they completely took over the generation of metal language. Uh, but there is, there, is, there is real competition from the nerd world because the computer world creates tons of meta words, you know, all, everything from blogging on or blogging back. Yeah, early on in the course of this uh, show, I actually read some poems about those neologisms, a meta language from, and I think most of them were from that strange world. The computer nerd language, right, and and offices also office talk, o- yeah. office chat and talk, but nothing like computers and the poor surfers well, are still doing the same. You know, it's trade done. language. It's where language comes from. Is out of trade. There's some some gentleman who's quite prominent in some world out there whose name I came across the other day, and he's a perfectly respectable guy, and his name is Tobacco Walla. Tobacco Walla. That's tobacco his last Walla. name. His last name is Tobacco Walla. Is he uh, not a Sikh? What were the names of those folks? Is he? He's, an, he's, an, he's an East Indian. I mean, yeah. he's from India, of course. Or but often the people whose name ends in Walla are that group that came off of Goa. You know, Eddie Mercury was one. Uh, well, basically, Walla yeah. they. They're sellers of right. something. You so know, he's a tobacco walla. Rug, rug walla or whatever. He's a tobacco walla. Does, so I thought of, well, you know, why, you know, Barber's a perfectly ordinary name. Nobody ever thinks clip clip when you're introduced to high asses, but Bill Barber. But if his name you know. was Barber Walla. Now, in Walla Walla, Washington, is that where they sell walla or is that just sell, sell? It's just no, like, come on. You know the old story my grandfather told about who grew, who grew up in Walla Walla no. or at least lived there a long time. Oh, yeah. Andy T. Cope. Andy T. Cope. He uh, he said, "Well, it's called Walla Walla because uh, you walla in the mud all summer and you walla in the snow all winter." Oh, Andy had a sense of humor. I like that. Talking sense of humor. Funny boys are going back on the road. Firesign Theater next week. That's the week of the. Oh, I guess it's we do the twentieth, twenty first, twenty second. Three shows in Los Angeles at Barnesdale. You know, we return after a year with with now the we're all bozos on this bus show. Yeah, it's a brand new show, and the place that we liked playing last time that uh, people liked coming to because it was sort of easy to get to in in L.A. Parking, and then you walk up the hill, and you're in a park, and, and it's, it's a Frank Lloyd Wright facility. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a sweet spot in in L.A. It's not uh, you know one of your uh, you know, it's not like the Pasadena Playhouse. No, we're not going to go there. And it's not like those swanky West Side places, you know, that movie stars endow their names to. It's a nice, funky place run by the uh, Los Angeles County. Right. And God bless them for it. And so we'll, we'll be uh, there with a brand new show, as you said, Pete, three nights, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. So yep. that, that means we need mm, a lot of folks. Yeah. Come on down, Southern California. You just come on down. This is uh, from the New York Times via the Daily Beast. As some of the nation's largest lenders have conceded that their foreclosure procedures might have been improperly handled, lawsuits have revealed myriad missteps in crucial documents. The flawed practices that GMAC Mortgage, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Bank of America have recently been investigating are so prevalent, lawyers and legal experts say, that additional lenders and loan servicers are likely to halt foreclosure proceedings and may have to reconsider past evictions. Problems emerging in courts across the nation are varied, but all involve documents that must be submitted before foreclosures can proceed legally. Homeowners, lawyers, and analysts have been citing such problems for the last few years, but it appears to have reached such intensity recently that banks are beginning to re-examine whether all of the foreclosure papers were prepared properly. 
In some cases, documents have been signed by employees who say they have not verified crucial information like amounts owed by borrowers. Other problems involve questionable legal notarization of documents, in which, for example, the notarizations predate the actual preparation of the documents, suggesting that signatures were never actually reviewed by a notary. I think that's a criminal offense. Other problems occurred when notarizations took place so far from where the documents were signed that it was highly unlikely that the notaries witnessed the signings as the law requires. On still other important documents, a single official's name is signed in such radically different ways that some appear to be forgeries. Additional problems have emerged when multiple banks have all argued that they have the right to foreclose on the same property, a result of a murky trail of documentation and ownership. There is no doubt that the enormous increase in foreclosures in recent years have strained the resources of lenders and their legal representatives, creating challenges that any institution might find overwhelming. According to the Mortgage Bankers Association, the percentage of loans that were delinquent by 90 days or more stood at 9.5% in the first quarter of 2010, up from 4% in the same period of 2008. That's interesting. In a time when corporate profits have soared, when bank profits have soared, foreclosures have also soared. Unemployment have also soared. What a great group. Unemployment, foreclosures, bank profits, corporate profits, hand in hand, walking together down the road to ruin. What's that all about? What's it all about, Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith from Anytown, USA? Newsweek tells us that the idea that gay couples who are married or have children qualify as families has rapidly become the majority view in the U.S., and researchers credit public discussions about gay marriage by supporters as well as vehement opponents for the unexpectedly fast pace of change. That's the surprising conclusion of the Constructing the Family surveys, which monitor Americans' opinions about what makes a family. A detailed analysis of the results was included in the new book, Counted Out, Same-Sex Relations, an American's Definition of Family. These results are particularly startling because of the widespread assumption that the passage of the defense of marriage legislation in many states in recent years represented a growing backlash against gay marriage and gay families. But based on the new data, Brian Powell, a professor of sociology at Indiana University, says he has to conclude that any such backlash was short-lived. He says social change usually occurs at a glacial pace. What we're seeing is a very rapid shift in people's views of what they consider to be a family. When the researchers reviewed the first round of survey results in 2003, they found that about 41% of the respondents supported gay marriage, yet 53.6% agreed that two men living with a child constituted a family, and 55% said the same thing about two women living with a child. By 2010, not only did a majority, 52% in this case, say that they were in favor of gay marriage, but the proportion who believe that gays living with kids are family had grown to 68%. Powell says the team concluded that a variety of recent societal shifts were key to this accelerated rate of change, including the fact that homosexuals have become increasingly open with friends, family, and acquaintances about their sexual orientation. In 2003, 58% of the survey's respondents said they didn't have any family or friends who were gay. By 2010, that proportion had fallen by almost a third. Only 40% said they didn't have any gay friends or relatives. Only 18% said they didn't know anyone who was gay. Overall, in 2003, the researchers found that 20 to 29-year-olds were the most supportive of gay marriage. By 2010, that group had expanded upward to the age of 38. That's another decade of people accepting gay marriage and gay families. That's a big jump in a short time, Powell says. Researchers who did follow-up interviews with some respondents also noted significant changes in the way people spoke about gay issues over the last seven years. When they talked to their first group in 2003, Powell said a lot of people would lower their voices before saying the word gay. They didn't want to say it out loud. But starting the next year, as defense of marriage laws became a major political issue and there was much more public disclosure about gay issues, people seemed to become more comfortable discussing the topic. 
Respondents began to mention, for example, the impact of seeing Lynn Cheney talking about her daughter on TV, Powell says. And people became much more likely just to say the word. The sheer fact of talking about it seems to make a difference. It brings it out of the shadows. Over the last seven years, Powell says, the researchers were also able to document a profound shift in what the public considers to be the determinant of an individual's sexual orientation. By 2010, the proportion who say homosexuality is the result of either genetics or God's will is over 60%. And those who say it's caused by bad parenting has gone way down. Yeah, bad parenting turns children gay. This is really good thinking. I think this is where Sarah Palin's at, yeah, when she isn't busy telling us that kids frolic with dinosaurs. <laughs> that means the number who thinks sexual orientation cannot be changed has gone up. Interestingly, the 15 to 20% who say homosexuality is the result of God's will also tend to be among the most open to gay rights, he says. What does all this pretend for the near future? While those who strongly oppose gay marriage have been a powerful political bloc because they tend to be one-issue voters, Powell says his best guess is that their numbers will continue to shrink. Between 2003 and 2010, he says the number of people who adamantly oppose gay marriage declined from 45% of the survey's respondents to 35%. I suspect that this is changing more rapidly than most politicians realize, he says. That should be a lesson to politicians. Don't assume you know what the voters think. They may be way ahead of you. Yes, it's true. And it's another reason I believe that the GOP is dissolving in front of us as a, as a, a legitimate political party. These one-issue voters are losing their one issue, with the exception of abortion, which is an issue that can never be resolved, is totally political, is totally personal. Everything else is going to slip by the wayside, taking the GOP, the legitimate, the honest, the real GOP with it. Well, Peter, I'm speaking to you from underneath the underwater plume right now, just hoping there's some good news out there on the horizon. Well, Can't there, see any from here. But. There is. Remember yeah. the Reverend Ted Haggard, the one who had the huge church and big homophobe and all that, and they discovered that he was homosexual and was having and methamphetamine-based relationships with a gay masseuse or something like that. Something and, like that. And then they excommunicated him from his mega church, and it was just awful. Well, Reverend Ted Haggard gave a press conference recently to make a big announcement about his career path. He's back? And what an announcement it was. Okay. Outside of his home in Colorado Springs, which is where all the Christians are, yep. with his family by his side, they stuck with him, mm -hmm. Haggard revealed that he's starting a new church. Okay, now if he's still got his family by his side, he's either by or, or his wife is getting... Uh, something else happening somewhere else. I don't know. I don't want to pretend. It was a big church. Big church. There's, right? uh, it's a big it's, church. It's, there's room for everyone. Yeah. Haggard said that many may believe he's not qualified to be a pastor again, but he thinks that because of what we've been through, he's qualified to help other people in need. This is the Charles Colson defense. Yeah, but he ain't no Colson. <laughs> okay. Haggard, of course, is referring to 2006 when he admitted to a homosexual affair amid allegations of drug use. He was the founder and leader of the evangelical New Life Church at the time, but was excommunicated following the revel revelations. All right. He said that his new church, St. James Church in Colorado Springs, will welcome everyone, including those who are gay, straight, bi, tall, short, whether you're an addict, a recovering addict, or you have an addict in your family. Democrats are welcome. Republicans are welcome. Independents are welcome, Hag Haggard added. Referring to the scandal as the crash, Haggard noted that since it happened, I don't judge people anymore. However, he did emphasize that there will be no gay marriages performed in the church because God's ideal plan for a marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Haggard added that it's also God's ideal that we all have our weight under control, but that doesn't always happen. I don't want to be a political activist, Haggard said. I want to help people. Well, bless him, bless him. Bless him, Absolutely. man. Yeah, I mean, you know, he is no Colson. When, when Proctor and I were on the um, Maury Povich show in Washington, D.C. many years ago, uh, we did it many times, uh, Colson preceded us once and wouldn't allow us on set. He would not allow the likes of us to be on set as he did his whole Christian criminal prison stuff. No, no, I'll tell you. Haggard, I mean, Charles Colson is no Ted Haggard. From the New York Times, 
Two decades after global competition drove the mines in this corner of Japan to extinction, Kosaka is again abuzz with talks of new riches. The treasures are not copper or coal. They are rare earth elements and other minerals that are crucial to many Japanese technologies and have so far come almost exclusively from China, the global leader in rare earth mining. Recent problems with Chinese supplies of rare earths have sent Japanese traders and companies in search of alternative sources, creating opportunities for Kosaka. This town's hopes for a mining comeback lie not underground, but in what Japan refers to as urban mining, recycling the valuable metals and minerals from the country's huge stockpiles of used electronics like cell phones and computers. We're literally discovering gold in cell phones, says Tetsuyo Fuyashiba, a former land minister who visited here recently to survey Kosaka's recycling plant. Kosaka's pursuits have become especially important for Japan in recent weeks. Late this month, amid a diplomatic spat with Tokyo, China started to block exports of certain rare earths to to Japan. The Chinese are hardballers, man. They're having a trouble over a trawler incident or something like it. So immediately they begin to punish the, the Japanese. They hate them anyway. You can't blame them. Rape of Nanking. Has there ever been a truly official apology from the Japanese government for that Holocaust? I wonder. The shipping ban was still in effect as of the day before yesterday in Japan, though a trickle of shipments seemed to be seeping out as a result of uneven enforcement of the ban by customs officers at various ports. China has allowed export of Chinese-made rare earth magnets and other rare earth products to Japan, but not semi-processed rare earth ores that would enable Japanese companies to make products. The cutoff has caused hand-wringing at Japanese manufacturers from giants like Toyota to tiny electronics makers because the raw materials are crucial to products as diverse as hybrid electric cars, wind turbines, and computer display screens. Besides gold, Doha's subsidiary, Kosaka Smelting and Refining, has so far successfully reclaimed rare metals like indium, used in liquid crystal display screens, and antimony used in silicon wafers for semiconductors. The company is trying to develop ways to reclaim the harder-to-mine minerals, including among the rare earths like neodymium, a vital element in industrial batteries used in electric motors, and dysprosium used in laser materials. Uh, can I have some more dysprosium, please? Good, that's a great, I like this. Neodymium and dysprosium. You don't hear those words often. Well, you hear them on Oz. Concern over China's hoarding of rare earths has also been spreading to the United States. Although China has not specifically blocked shipments to any place but Japan, it has already tightened its overall export quotas of the minerals, announcing in July that it would reduce them by 72% for the rest of the year. Yeah, I would call a reduction of 72% a tightening. Last Wednesday in Washington, the House of Representatives approved a bill authorizing research to address the supply of rare earths, saying the minerals were critical to energy, military, and manufacturing technologies. Ah, the word military. If it's important to the military, move heaven and earth. Japan, excuse me, move heaven and rare earth. Japan is also pushing for new manufacturing processes that do not require rare earths. Last week, the government-affiliated New Energy and Industrial Technology Development Organization, that's a mouthful, wonder what it sounds like in Japanese, announced that it had developed a motor for hybrid vehicles that use cheap and readily available ferrite magnets instead of the rare earth magnets typically required. Good idea. I mean, if China has the vast majority of these rare earths and is willing to cut them back 72% because of some whim, we've got to find another way. Obviously, we've got to find another way. One, two, three. From the New York Times, Republicans carry substantial advantages as they move into the final month of the fall campaign, but the resilience of vulnerable Democrats is complicating Republican efforts to lock down enough seats to capture the House and take control of the unsettled electoral battleground. By now, Republicans had hoped to put away a first layer of Democrats and set their sights on a second tier of incumbents. But the fight for control of Congress is more fluid than it seemed at Labor Day, with Democrats mounting strong resistance in some parts of the country as they try to hold off a potential Republican wave in November. 
the chances of a Republican takeover in the House remain far greater than in the Senate, according to a race-by-race analysis by the New York Times, but enough contests remain in flux that both parties head into the final four weeks of the campaign with the ability to change the dynamic before Election Day. Races typically tighten in the final month as voters on both sides become more engaged, and the political climate is no more favorable for Democrats than it has been all year, with no substantial signs of improvement in the economy or the outlook for unemployment. Yet even as spending from outside groups is threatening to swamp many Democratic candidates, Republican strategists estimated that only half of the 39 seats they need to win control of the House were definitely in hand. Many Democratic incumbents remain vulnerable, but their positions have stabilized in the last month as they have begun running negative advertisements to raise questions about their Republican challengers and shift the focus of voters away from contentious national issues like health care, bailouts, and President Obama's performance. For Republicans to take control of the Senate, the margin of error remains small. The party needs to win 10 of 12 of the most competitive contests, which include seats in Democratic, leaning California, Connecticut, Illinois, and Washington. Democrats pointed to positive signs in recent weeks, including that Senator Barbara Boxer, a third-term Democrat, appears to be running ahead of her Republican challenger, Carly Fiorina, in California. Mrs. Boxer's seat is among those Republicans have been working to capture. In South Dakota, Representative Stephen Herseth Sandlin, a Democrat viewed as being in deep trouble in her red state, has been running ahead in polls in what remains a competitive race. Our candidates are remaining viable long after the Republicans have counted them out, said Representative Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Voters are taking a very close look at the Republican challengers. The Midwest, with its job losses and stagnant economy, is looming as particularly difficult terrain for Democrats who have multiple tough races in Illinois, Michigan, and Ohio. But in other races across the country, Democratic candidates in some of the most difficult contests said that they were holding their own and that they were seeing a growing interest in the campaign among Democratic voters. While they say they have no illusions about the political environment, particularly as many remain below 50% in their own polling, they say they can still defy expectations and win with a strong voter turnout effort. Anyone who has written my campaign off is in for a surprise come election night, said Representative Earl Pomeroy, a Democrat incumbent battling for re-election in North Dakota. Mr. Pomeroy has been rated one of the most vulnerable Democrats, given the Republican and conservative tilt of the state. But polls show him essentially tied with his Republican challenger, Rick Berg, who has been the subject of a series of tough attack ads from Mr. Pomeroy. Well... Hello, dear friends. This is the Reverend Bill Barnstormer, and I'm right here by your side at the first ultra-unorthodox church of science. Fiction. You know, dear friends, we've all been thinking a lot about freedom, and say thank you for that. What with the colorful, historic recreationists out there dressed up like George Washington, Patrick Henry, and those original nine justices who who wrote our Constitution. And and the don't tread on my snake flags, yes sirree. Live free or die, they say, but you know, most of us are not ready for that just yet in this lifetime, and say thank you for that. So can't we all agree that big government's nose has no place under the sheets? Now, the sheet metal siding on my double wide, that has the government's nose all over it. Now about freedom and taxes. You know, I don't pay taxes because I've taken a vow of near poverty and I'm as near as I'd like to get. Say thank you for that. But dear friends, if you are a rich person, take that tax money Congress is gonna give back to you and trickle it on down. Pay somebody to drive your laundry to the French cleaners. Eat your meals out and tip. Spread it around at the farmer's market. Spend freely and say thank you. You know, not so long ago, dear friends, freedom meant a thing with a 
a deadly price on it for a lot of folks. Why, some women figured it was all about voting and jobs and Cosmopolitan magazine, and, and most, most kids thought freedom was summer vacation, and you could say thank you again and again for that, but freedom at this time isn't about the show-off in the wig. It's about our right as the chosen people, Americans, to milk the cow dry. And the sooner she's dry, dear friends, the closer we are to that next world where we can all say thank you and eat our last supper unto all eternity. This is the Reverend Bill Barnstormer. Don't forget to send for my two new good booklets, Medical Marijuana Inside the Government Health Plan, and Household Tips About Terrorists. Just send a, a cute postcard to me at Good Booklets, Box X, in Old Gas Pipe, California. Goodbye for now. From Politico. Once despondent Democrats now believe they may be able to avert a total midterm wipeout as several important states now appear to be trending in their direction or growing more competitive. Quote, it's obviously a tough election for us, but the doomsday stories have always been exaggerations, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee Chairman Chris Van Hollen said in an interview with, uh, with Politico. Top Democratic officials are convinced, and even some Republicans privately concede that what's happening is that party loyalists are coming home and other voters are beginning to assess both candidates in individual races. The early polls were really a gauge of people's anger. But more recent polls are a gauge of people's options, Delaware Governor and Democratic Governors Association Chairman Jack Marktell told Politico. What's driving Democratic optimism is improving polling numbers, both in individual races and in generic indicators, ramped up fundraising, and their field efforts. In the Ohio and Illinois governor's race, Democratic candidates have sliced into Republican margins and are now effectively tied or slightly trailing their GOP opponents. And in California and New York, Republican gubernatorial hopefuls have suffered major self-inflicted wounds. In the Senate, incumbent Senator Barbara Boxer of California and Patty Murray of Washington have staked out leads, and Republican Representative Mark Kirk, the GOP Senate nominee in Illinois, appears to be slipping. And even as Connecticut and West Virginia have suddenly emerged as promising opportunities for Republicans, the nomination of Christine the Witch O'Donnell, who trails by double digits in Delaware, and the continued difficulties of Sharon Angle in Nevada mean that the path for Republicans to win 10 seats is extremely narrow. Yeah, it's like squeezing that bloated GOP camel through the tiny midterm eye of the needle. Hey, all of you Ozaneers on Twitter, uh, retweeting has its rewards, and we are going to give you an opportunity to win some cool stuff simply by helping us spread the word about Radio Free Oz on Twitter. If you aren't following us yet, go up to www.twitter.com slash Network and follow the show. See you on the inside. Yeah, this one's from the Daily Beast. An Indiana University survey has come along to put some confirming data on the faked orgasm phenomena. The survey found that 85% of men said their partners climaxed during the most recent sex act, while 64% of women reported they actually did. Now let's see, that's 21% of the women were faking it. There's this massive gap between men's perception and women's reality, says Debbie Habernick, co-author of the research and associate director of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion at the university. It shows a lack of communication between partners, either by women faking it or by men not asking or noticing if their partners climaxed. Probably a rich combination of both. The survey, which drew on data from nearly 6,000 participants, between the ages of 14 and 94, covered a wide range of sexual behaviors, sexual health practices, and sexual perceptions. And according to the center, it was the largest nationally representative survey on sexual health ever performed. Yeah, and it also came up with all kinds of other interesting information I've been reading, which is the definition of a sexual act has broadened remarkably among people, particularly in the areas of oral sex. So you've got 
Oral sex is growing, but women are are faking it. I mean, you know, it's the the same old same. Guys just won't believe it, man. They just don't take the time to find out what women are all about. I want the balance to come to me. And I'll play it back to you, and we'll have a rhythm, and it'll dance and flow. And you can be smoother than that, but don't take it don't don't take it too literal. You can take it ethereal, but but you know it's it's in the morning. Whoa, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, this is where I go to school. It's kind of crazy, ain't it? The first time I saw the studio, I almost fainted. I couldn't contemplate how I had even made it from my late registration. Now I'm facing graduation, and I ain't stressing this recession. If it leads to a depression, it won't be in my mind. I'll be fine as long as I'm surviving off the beats and rhyming. Then I don't mind surviving off the of no rhyming. Cause where I'm standing right now, this is the best time to be grinding. Cause ain't nobody signing. So ain't nobody shining, no more dreams are going dominant Spitting that fly talk, dudes acting like they street when they barely sidewalk My best friend said that music comes from someone in transition So I'm sifting through pessimism and something uplifting So if you love something that is on a rhyme with the skill Then you gon' recognize when you see this really well See my people's always mention that the industry is missing something Enforce on coming with permission, not to mention an inch of scale. And if that's how you feel, my name is now. This is how you let the beat build. Uh, that's how you let the beat build. That's how you let the beat build, right, ladies? That's how you let the beat build. Uh, ow, yeah, uh, yo, let the beat build from the cornerstone. The coffee stone when I'm off the dome, we get screwed like a wall when you nail these clothes. You're on top, but you never flow on top like a steeple. Take them out like the repo, we know. Ego from here to ego, you know it ain't no equal when it comes to my ego. I want a piece of the pie, but there's a whole line ahead of me. People so hungry, finds eating their integrity, and every business twisted up in their creative vision. And no way crazy, listen, I ain't starved for attention. Ain't no honorable mentions, make a win and look easy. With these likes, I'm looking like the light skin wheezy mother. That I'm ill, call me a naggy. Got a girl with a banjo From the first bar You can see that I'm a star I make y'all wish hard Like return of Jafar And show y'all all what It feels like to be in awe Y'all That's how we let the beat feel That's how you let the beat feel That's how you let the beat feel This from Newsweek. China's fiercest anti-ship missile, designed by Russia and dubbed the Sizzler by NATO, has a 300-kilometer range and accelerates to roughly three times the speed of sound as it nears its target. The Sizzler can reach farther and fly faster than the West's top anti-ship missiles, America's Harpoon and France's Exocet. Oh my, oh my. And of course, count on Russia to build it and sell it to anybody. They've sold Sizzlers to India and possibly Iran and Syria and Algeria have expressed interest, widening the threat. Everyone in the Western world is wondering how you defeat it, says John Patch, a professor at the U.S. Army War College. Yeah, man, watch out. Here comes the Sizzler. China sees missiles such as the Sizzler and a missile currently in development known as the Dongfeng DF-21D. I like Sizzler better. As key to its growing naval power in Asia, the Sizzler can be launched from submarines even when submerged, which could turn part of China's subfleet from a manageable threat to a very problematic one, says Patch. 
The DF-21D, a ground-launched ballistic missile, they should call it the Dim Sum, really. The DF-21D, a ground-launched ballistic missile with a 1,500-kilometer range, is being redesigned by China to dive from space, traveling at about 2 kilometers per second to cripple an aircraft carrier. As of today, the U.S. has no reliable countermeasures. With the DF-21D likely to be ready for a flight test in two years or less, the West is suddenly regarding China's anti-ship capabilities as pretty daunting, says Eric McVarden, a former U.S. Navy rear admiral and defense attaché to Beijing. Wow, yeah. Watch out, man. You got the sizzler coming across the water and you got the dim sum coming out of space. We in trouble. We in deep fried trouble. China's new missile technology comes at a time when tensions between Washington and Beijing are decidedly strained, and when the U.S. Navy has never been so threatened by weapon systems since the end of the Cold War. In May, U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates expressed reluctance to build new carriers, pointing to the growing range and accuracy of the anti-ship missiles of potential adversaries. For its part, Beijing is likely to continue to beef up its missile capabilities and already boasts the world's most active ground launch programs, according to a recent Department of Defense report. Now, China has shown no desire whatsoever to rule the world, but this makes defense of the Chinese mainland very, very realistic. But China's missile program could backfire by driving rattled neighbors like Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand to request closer naval cooperation with the U.S., says Ramil Nik, a former Malaysian defense attaché to the United Nations. By talking tough while developing formidable anti-ship weapons, China is undercutting its own goal of keeping America out of its region, says Paul Giara, a former Asia expert in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Much, however, depends on the American response, the experts say. To maintain its credibility as a reliable shield in the Asia-Pacific, the U.S. Navy needs an answer to China's new generation of anti-ship missiles. Hey, ships are ducks sitting ducks. They are fish in a barrel floating on the top of the ocean. From DeHuff, states increasingly are imposing fees on poor criminal defendants who use public defenders even when they can't pay, causing some to go without attorneys, according to two reviews of the nation's largest state criminal justice systems. Oh, that's nice. The poor get poorer and get more undefended. A report out Monday of this week by New York University School of Law's Brennan Center for Justice found that 13 of the 15 states with the largest prison populations impose some charge, including application fees for access to counsel. In practice, these fees often discourage individuals from exercising their constitutional right to an attorney, leading to wrongful convictions, over-incarceration, and significant burdens on the operation of courts, the Brennan Report concludes. Hmm, my. In Michigan, the report says the National Legal Aid and Defender Association found the threat of having to pay the full cost of a signed consul caused misdemeanor defendants to waive their right to attorneys 95% of the time. Three states studied, Florida, North Carolina, and Virginia, have no provisions for the courts to waive some of the fees if defendants can't pay. In Virginia, defendants can be charged up to $1,235 per count for some felonies, the report says. Ah, just throw them away. And the key with it. A separate report of five state justice systems out Monday by the ACLU produced similar findings. Both studies say the fees are a little-known source of revenue in the criminal justice system that are steadily rising. People are emerging from the criminal justice process with significant debts that they cannot hope to repay, said Rebecca Diller, co-author of the Brennan Center Report. As a result, these fees are creating new paths back to prison for those unable to pay. Vinita Gupta, the ACLU's deputy legal director, says, We are creating a two-tiered system of justice in which the poorest among us are punished more harshly than those with means. Why am I not shocked? Why am I not surprised? Well, Peter, I know you'll be excited to know that there's a booming business in nothing. Really? Yes, there's another nothing that is booming. Uh, This one is people are paying real money for things that exist only in cyberspace. That's right. 
the Inside Network, a research firm that tracks social media trends. Oh, would you like to work for that place? I think I am without knowing it. Uh, Anyway, the Inside Network said last week that the market for virtual goods in the United States was expected to grow to $2.1 billion next year, up from $1.6 billion projected this year. Estimates based on uh, this company, virtual estimates by a virtual company. Anyway, these are items that people buy on Facebook. Yes. Games like Farmville, Mm -hmm. Mafia Wars, and Sorority Life. Okay, sounds good to me. Real money, so you can dress up a paper doll on on your on your iPad. I mean. I, I mean, this is the Department of Americans gone, gone crazy. Well, what about Second Life, the virtual space that, mm-hmm. that did over a billion dollars in their own currency? Yeah. How about the fact that Sony spent a hundred grand to build their corporate, their virtual corporate headquarters up there? This has been going on for quite a while, Dave. Well, yes, but but these are this is just stuff. Yeah. But why are people? Why would people pay money for things that only exist? I mean. I can understand having having a a, a, a second uh, virtual life. That 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 makes a lot of sense to me, and I, I can I I can really get hmm what? Uh, no, that's just crazy. Because who has the time to be two people? You have hardly have enough time to be yourself. But I think even sillier than than gambling uh, online gambling, which is about to come to us thanks to you know Schumer in New York. Yeah, everything except. You know, I, I think I think religious organizations can't do some sort of of gambling there. Right, you know, yeah. illegal gambling. Yeah, but it's all going to be legal. Well, I think it's crazy. I I'm and I'm I'm totally against it, man. It's just insane to buy some paper doll clothes that aren't even paper, and she's not even cute, and not even a doll. From the folds of the gray lady. As many households and small businesses are being turned away by bank loan officers, large corporations are borrowing vast sums of money for next to nothing, simply because they can. Companies like Microsoft are raising billions of dollars by issuing bonds at ultra-low interest rates, but few of them are actually spending the money on new factories, equipment, or jobs. Instead, they are stockpiling the cash until the economy improves. Oh, that's good. Bargain basement money available to super corporations. You know, I remember when I was studying economics in college, uh, companies borrowed money in order to invest in productive facilities and to create new jobs, not to just sit on it. The development presents something of a chicken and egg situation. Except there aren't any chickens and eggs in anybody's pot anymore. Corporations keep saving, waiting for the economy to perk up, but the economy is unlikely to perk up if the corporations keep saving. That doesn't sound so good to me. That is a situation I don't know what to do with. This situation underscores the limits of Washington policymakers' power to stimulate the economy. Yeah, they can't go in, for example, and say, hoarded money is unproductive, we are going to we are going to subject it to a murderous tax rate. The Federal Reserve has held official interest rates near zero for almost two years, which allows corporations to sell bonds with only slightly higher returns, even below 1%. But most companies are not doing what the easy money policy was intended to get them to do, invest and create jobs. That's because they have no conscience. They have no social conscience. And they're getting away with it. The Fed's low rates have, in fact, hurt many Americans, especially retirees, whose incomes from savings have fallen substantially. Big companies like Johnson & Johnson, PepsiCo, and IBM seem to have been among the major beneficiaries. Well, I'm so glad for them because they need it so badly. American corporations have been saving more money since the financial collapse of 2008. But a recent rush of blue-chip bond offerings, including a $4.75 billion deal last month by Microsoft, Yeah, one of the richest companies in the world has put even more money in their coffers. Corporations now sit atop a combined $1.6 trillion of cash, a figure equal to slightly more than 6% of their total assets. In the first quarter of this year, it was 6.2% of assets, the highest level since 1964 when it was 6.4%. When will they start spending the money? In particular, by hiring. 
That is part of what has become the great question of this long, jobless recovery. When will corporate America start to feel confident enough to put its cash to work, building factories and putting some of the nation's 14.9 million unemployed to work? Well, that's a real question when you consider that a lot of these corporations are being run by bean counters who don't know a widget from Waziristan, who don't know how to put a spring in a clock, right? All they know how to do is crunch numbers and cheat. The cheap money may be having yet another effect, unintended by the policymakers eager to cut the nation's 9.6% unemployment rate. Excuse me, that is dinged up to 9.7. Several of the corporations borrowing billions on bond markets are using the money to put their own financial house in order rather than to create jobs. Microsoft said it was using some of the money to buy back shares. Other companies are locking in longer-term borrowing, and some of the new borrowing is, is, is financing an increase in mergers and acquisitions, which means fewer jobs. When you merge, you throw half the people out, and you give half the service and make twice the money. Ah, ain't capitalism great. All of this may enrich the corporation's shareholders and cut company costs in the long run, but it does not necessarily lead to more jobs, and it does not represent the big investments in growth that could fuel a sharp economy recovery for everyone. Uh-huh. Well, do the corporations care? Okay. Do they really care? Don't they just wake up in the morning and take a look at what they call the bottom line? Well, I think maybe they ought to take a look. Maybe their bottom line needs some wiping. From Politico. Well, President Barack Obama has been hemorrhaging independent voters, at least until recently. But a new Gallup poll out the day before yesterday shows that he still remains a dominant force within the Democratic base. Several key groups that tend to lean Democratic remain solidly behind the president, and Obama's staunchest supporters from 2008 remain in his camp. 91% of African Americans approve of Obama, as do 79% of self-identified Democrats and 75% of liberals. Obama remains the preference of young voters, as 57% of 18 to 29-year-olds support the president. A majority of Hispanics, self-identified moderates, and those with a postgraduate degree also still approve of the president. Obama's overall average approval rating stood at 45% in September's daily tracking polls. Only 36% of whites and 38% of seniors approve of the president. Only 36% of the whites approve of the not me and 38% of the seniors. That's the only, the, the, only a third of the seniors get it. Well, they're the ones that were most easily scared by Sarah, by Sarah Palin and, and the lies that dribbled out of her made up mouth amongst all the others that joined her in that poisonous chorus, the Glenn Becks, et cetera, et cetera, the bully boys on Fox and the whites. The white males are in rebellion against the government because they're angry, because they're drunk, because they're sick, because they won't take responsibility for what's going down. Well, Peter, sometimes uh, we have uh, uh, triple riders on the bus to the Bardo, and at the beginning of October, we had one of those collisions, three interesting guys from the media. One, uh, the youngest, was uh, Stephen J. Cannell, who invented practically everything on television. I remember the ends of shows where you'd see this cartoon of him or a picture of him unreeling another page from his typewriter. Typewriter, right. Went flying off into the, uh, into the air. He was only 69, which is wow. sad. He did, of course, everything. The Rockford Files was perhaps his most favorite. And, and the A-Team, a totally silly thing. But um, I'm sorry, you know, I looked at his nice picture. He looked like a nice guy. They were all funny shows back then, and, and I missed him already, you know? Well, that was one, and then the next day in the paper, two people showed up in their 90s, having lived great lives. Art Gilmore, Art Gilmore, 98, who announced everything. He was, he was like the almost the original announcer, and he was in L.A. Uh, for a long time. Uh, he promoted uh, as coming attractions like, shall we start with Dumbo? I mean, that goes, that goes voice, way back. Way back, way, way back. He, uh, he did Amos and Andy, Sears Radio Theater, Red Rider. Uh, he was married for 73, 72 years to the same lady. 
He a was lucky man. a nice guy, and uh, one of those, I bet his after checks looked really good when they were coming in. Yep. And the other one is Buddy Morrow. Buddy Morrow, trombonist, band leader. Oh, yeah. Does anybody remember? Do, 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 Night Train. Night Train. Night Train. Buddy Morrow did Night Train? Buddy Morrow. That's hot. That's hip. That's beatnik. Well, definitely. Well, he was 91, and let me just read you the story. At 91, Buddy Morrow had to be helped on stage to lead the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra in Ormond Beach, Florida, on September 24th. But once the music started, his energy never wavered. He even played the trombone solo on Night Train, which had sold more than a million copies for him in 1952. But when Mr. Morrow left the stage to tumultuous applause, it ended the final performance of a career that spanned more than seven decades. Mr. Morrow died Monday at his home in Maltland, Florida. Well, he, they're all taking the night train. They are. The doodly 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 boom boom. The nice thing about the end of Oz, of course, it presages the next Oz, which is kind of the the flow in my life, is that I know you, David, are going to transport me and the rest of us back to Tang, China, where things may not have been simpler. Maybe they were. There was there was no media to speak of except nature itself and your friends. Yes, indeed, and your wine. <clears throat> yes. This is uh, from Chen Zhu. Ang. This is new. We haven't had this. this we haven't dude had with this before. guy. Six sixty-one to seven o two were his dates in the evening. Oh no, excuse me. <laughs> well, he didn't have much evening in his life, but uh, he, sh- he he wrote pretty. He wrote pretty, and this there's a little message here that comes in at the end. Yeah, okay. Kingfishers nest on South Sea islands, male and female, in vermilion-colored groves. How would they know? the minds of fair ladies who cherish them far more than gold. Their bodies slain in the land of burning sun, their feathers cast in a dark corner in a jade hall. Resplendent, they glitter as hair ornaments. Lush, they decorate the embroidered quilt. It isn't that you can't keep your distance. A forest official's net will suddenly seek you out. To be born with talents is to invite disaster. I heave a sigh at this fabulous bird. Whoa, that is, I'm liking this guy. My, oh my, what a rich time for poetry. Well, we'll hear more of him as Oz continues on and on. And on.